Welcome to Cathedral Talk, a podcast about architecture and Minecraft, where we converse to save Notre Dame. the server gents all right server happen i'm on already uh so guess what after you guys guilt tripped me in the last episode saying tom when are you ever going to build some more sections of that two to one scale notre dame i did it i completed the first level of vaulting for the chevet and it looks beautiful oh thank you thank you very much zach's saying dirty things to me in chat what in, in Minecraft chat or in podcast chat? In Minecraft chat. Mm. I, I, I mean, I guess you could say dirty things there too. We've been having some uh, Wi-Fi troubles today, um, ladies and gentlemen. So if our conversation is more disjointed than usual, uh, well, um, it's because I just couldn't clean it up enough in the edit. And Tom is also three margaritas deep. Is this just going to be? A, is this going to be a thing now? How many margaritas Tom is drinking for every episode? I, I think it should be cumulative. He's he's so he had three last time, and so it's another three this time. So he's six deep. It's water, people. It's water. See, I, what I'm trying to do is get your students, all of whom listen to this <laughs> podcast. Instead of giving you apples on Teacher Appreciation Day <laughs> to give you triple sec and Cointreo. I have never gotten an apple for Teacher Appreciation Day. Is- the only thing teachers get for Appreciation Days are, uh, you know, little awards that say best teacher ever and then usually a $5 gift card to Starbucks. That's better than an apple. An apple's like two bucks. It's better for my wife since she's the only one who drinks Starbucks. Uh, that's what that's true. You don't drink coffee. No. But Tom is such a, a lover of tradition that even if he didn't eat the apple, getting the apple would just raise his spirits. <laughs> so let me say that this build, which I just managed to fly to, would require a lot of Starbucks for me to finish. How many hours did this portion take you? Well, I mean, I think we, we've been here before. It's just been a while. Uh, last time we talked about it, I think was like episode five or six. Oh boy. Um, so we last time we visited the two to one build, I had already completed just the outer wall with the buttresses extending from the wall, sort of radiating out of the large semicircle of the exterior part of the chevet. And we talked a good bit about how the current wall that connects those buttresses is eventually going to get demolished for a wider radius wall just because um, Notre Dame was renovated over time. Uh, But for now, this is the state in which it was built from the beginning. Uh, But now what I have completed, which was a lot more work, was all the vaulting of the twin aisles that wrap around the central vessel and the apse. This was a very long process because, like I said, this is, you know, usually the hardest things in Minecraft are all the curves trying to mimic, you know, different kinds of curvature. And all these vaults that have sort of crisscrossed ribbing at different angles uh, in three dimensions as you curve around a circle, it's very time consuming to get something that's aesthetically pleasing. How much, uh, how many hours do you think 
to build this, how many hours to plan it, how many hours to mine the materials for it. I don't think I could answer any of those questions. <laughs> Especially since mining the materials, he had help from one of his friends. Oh, good point. That's true. That's true. Much of the vaulting is made out of the new Deep Slate. And the reason that I use Deep Slate in particular, I really like the Deep Slate tile texture because that has sort of the irregular tiny little bricks um, which is kind of similar to the webbing that you find in Gothic vaults. I used a texture pack to lighten it up a little bit. It's a little too dark in the native texture pack for Minecraft. I'm I'm not seeing that texture pack though, right? I'm just seeing basic. No, you're seeing just one, but you're probably noticing that some of the webbing is made of the tiled deep slate, and then other parts of the webbing are made of cobbled deep slate. Are you noticing there's different stones? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The reason I did that is in my texture pack, I took cobbled deep slate, which I tend to find not especially useful in the vanilla game just because we've already got cobblestone and it's not that different in my opinion. Uh, but I took the texture for the cobbled deep slate and I copied the texture of the tiled deep slate, which I really like and put it in place of the cobble deep slate, but I rotated it 90 degrees. Ah, uh, I can see how that would help without even being able to actually see that in my own game right now, because, yeah, that can be annoying that the, the bricks all face one direction. Yeah, exactly. So I wanted it so that when you look up at the vaults, the the webbings all point inwards, which is how it really looks at, you know, the real thing. Sure. Um, and I, I, had, I hadn't originally considered this when I was building at first, but after I, like, built one vault, I was like, this would look much better if this was just angled in another direction. Right. So I had to figure out which stone was the most worthwhile one to sacrifice. And I was like, I kind of like this deep slate. I kind of like this sleep. I mean, they gave us like five deep slates. So I sort of was like, okay, let me get rid of this deep slate. Maybe I ended up just sacrificing cobbled deep slate. If for no other reason than again, I don't find its texture for me too useful for the things that I tend to be doing, at least right now. And um, also, Cobble Deep Slate is sort of the go-to. It can get crafted into anything else, so it's easy to balance out with. If you have too much of one thing, you can turn it into something else. Once you hunkered down and decided that, okay, I'm going to finish this now, are your supplies and materials, were they already all well at hand, or did you have to get even more? Well, again, the Deep Slate was a little rough, and I, I before Zach had deposited a large sum of several shulker boxes worth of... Uh, of deep slate. I, I did have to do some runs to get some deep slate and I don't really have a deep slate mine up and running yet. Uh, ever since we deleted most of our world to get the new terrain, I have yet to start really start a new base and a new mining colony. So uh, I'm sort of having to live off of the scraps, but it, it actually didn't take a ton of deep slate because right now the vaulting is very thin. For mo most of it's only one block thick. And remember, uh, when you craft, you know, slabs, slabs, you can get two slabs for every one regular block. Yeah. So you can really get a lot of blocks from a relatively small supply. Ah, it's raining. There's no roof. Just get under the vaulting. I'm all wet now. So if it, when this was being constructed uh, and it rained, where did the water go? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a great question. Um, I think... At least when it comes to like the primary vaulting of the central vessel, and again, when I say central vessel, I'm talking about the the nave, the transept, the choir, the main hallway that is at the center, surrounded by the smaller aisles that flank it. When that main vaulting is built, they usually build the roof, the wooden roof on top of it first to protect all of the masonry as you then build the vaulting underneath it uh, so it doesn't get too wet. 
And usually, as one thing we've learned from the reconstruction efforts at Notre Dame ever since we had the fire, uh, we've learned that the different kinds of limestone were used at the um, vaulting level versus like in the buttresses and walls of the cathedral. They tended to use lighter, more porous stone for the high vaults uh, in a Gothic cathedral. And the reason that they did that is because it's lighter and they're just trying to minimize the weight of the, the vaulting as much as possible so that, you know, it doesn't become too heavy and push the whole building down. But that also has the problem, like you said, if it gets wet, all that porous limestone can fill up with water and that can really destabilize the building, which is exactly one of the problems that they were really concerned about right after the fire. They were just as worried about all the water that they had dumped on Notre Dame, filling up all of that porous limestone, which made it way heavier. It was a little touch and go there in the beginning when they thought that, you know, maybe this water might push over some more of the walls that are just not designed to hold that much weight. I'm not used to the concept of, I know this is silly because I'm standing in a Minecraft thing with tons of different facsimiles of stone. I'm not used to stone being different weights. I know that's silly, but I just think of stone as all stone weighs the same, but obviously not. I mean, part of me is always like, why didn't they build it out of granite? You know, granite's so hard and you, you like granite is less likely to get destroyed. But Again, when you have a heavier stone that just throws off the balance of things and certain structures aren't just going to stay up in the same way. But again, the walls and the buttresses, they built out of a very different kind of limestone that was much harder, more durable. The videos that you made us watch a couple episodes ago uh, implied that some of the quarries were selected for political reasons. (laughs) Does Notre Dame have a history of selecting stone that may not have been Uh, fit for purpose and consequences occurred based off of those choices. I mean, I don't know too much about that, but my guess would be the fact that it lasted 850 years without incident is probably indication that there was no like weak points that they they built it from. And the fact that pretty much the building withstood the fire after the whole roof burned off shows that it was a pretty, pretty strong building overall. I think examples of, you know, collapses in cathedrals, um, I mean, Beauvais, the classic cathedral that collapsed because it was mostly built too high, although I don't know if any issues with the, the quality of the stone were uh, applicable to that uh, catastrophe as well. I'll look that one up for you, Zach. That's a good question. I do know that most of the, at least a lot of the stone at Notre Dame was quarried fairly locally from Paris. Like they've been discovering lots of in the catacombs around Paris where they think much of the limestone was quarried to build it originally. But that's all long depleted. So they've been having to, you know, outsource new locations to get similar looking limestone to rebuild the new stone parts. So it'll be really interesting to see, you know, as it starts to really fit in new stone, what it looks like. I know you like to have blocks that have every single type of uh, variation in them, stairs, half slab, yeah. polished, etc. Uh, there's the new calcite block mm-hmm. that looks a lot like marble. And it does not have, to the best of my understanding, those variations. No, it doesn't. Are there places in your two-to-one construction that you can use calcite because it is very pretty, Mm -hmm. even though you don't have those variations? Yes, I definitely love calcite. That's one of my more favorite blocks from the later patches that we've gotten. I like calcite in small decorative formations. 
I like the texture of calcite as a single or maybe a double block. I don't like the look of calcite when it's like a bunch next to each other. I think it's repetition. If you stack a bunch of calcite side by side, doesn't look as good. But as a single or double like block, try to mimic like a marble surface, I think it works very well. And yeah, I think, you know, for maybe like different capitals in certain spots, or I like to use it a lot in floor tiling. So yeah, there, there will be definitely places to use calcite. If we seem a little bit distracted, it's because David and I are enjoying your build <laughs> in the game. I I noticed you two were grinning in a very odd <laughs> way, and I can't be on the server with you right now because we were having some internet trouble over here, and we don't want to screw up the podcast recording. Please, please don't hurt my build. It took a long time to set that up. No, we're not hurting we're it. not hurting your build. We're just hurting each other. <laughs> yeah. And for the record, uh, we need to back this up, Zach. Uh, I, 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 I was reading through your instructions, and I was like, I need Zach to walk me through how we're going to run these backups for the server, because if I lose this work now, I'm going to be very sad. Fair enough. Speaking of catastrophes, both server-wise and cathedral structure-wise, if at this stage when this was actually built like this, mm -hmm. where just these outer vaultings, no central roof, mm -hmm. what would have been the biggest risks to the structure at this stage? Or would it have been a pretty stable construction? At this point, it would have been pretty stable. It's not that high yet. Yeah. Um, and I mean, okay, from remember, this is a two-to-one build. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it appears larger in game than it actually was in real life. And when you go in person, you know, it's, 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 I mean, it's, again, it's a tall building, but this is no more tall than maybe a two or three story regular house or something at this point. Sure. Um, you know, it, the, the issues with the height of Gothic architecture really start to occur around like the clerestory with the very tall windows in the central vessel that are so tall that not only is the heavy vaulting trying to topple them, but then you've also got the wind forces and stuff. And, you know, this is a very redundant build right now. You know, it's the twin aisle with many columns that are all sort of compressing adjacent vaults side by side. So, you know, I think it's actually quite stable. It's very locked in right now. Talking about at least what the stage of Notre Dame's setup would have been at this point in time. Speaking of fire, do we want to turn off fire tick on the server so that we don't have a catastrophic fire destroy all of our wooden structures? Yeah, maybe for the meantime, that would be good. Uh, I mean, we have lightning rods now, but I, I, I guess I could say that if my tavern went up in a blaze, I'd just say, Zach, set the server back like, you know, 10 days or something. Although now that we're not running nightly backups... um. We're gonna have to t we're gonna have to talk about that. Yeah, maybe maybe in the meantime, disable fire. There's also another setting that disables mob griefing, which includes Endermen stealing things. I know we talked about configuring what the Endermen can steal a couple episodes ago or in our early ones, but we can turn it off altogether, and we can also turn off uh, the fact that creeper explosions destroy blocks as well. I mean, I think the creeper explosions are just like, you're not playing Minecraft if you don't, if you don't have the creepers blow things up. Yeah, I agree. In terms of Endermen, Endermen are just annoying. So I, we, we might consider turning off, just moving the dirt. Cause just finding random dirt everywhere is just stupid. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that was a good update for your, yeah. uh, your two to one. All right. So how far will you be by next month? Well, so again, which won't be recorded immediately after this. No, no, we, uh, for, for the record, um, you are listening to this episode now, several months after we recorded it, which isn't that unusual anyway, but, 
Um, Dave and I are going on a little bit of a hiatus because we are both expecting babies in both of our families. So spoilers, spoilers. So, um, that means that we've, we've actually been trying to make some preparations so that you can have a nice steady flow of episodes over these next few months. And, uh, you know, if, uh, if we seem a little bit tired when we return, you'll know why. Sorry that we're not updating you on the latest current events like we usually do, such as the fact that it snowed. And the episode came out in June. Yeah, we've done that before. Also, we should mention that um, this episode that you're listening to right now is coming out in April. And because of that, that does make this the one anniversary of the podcast. So, hooray, guys. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Firing off rockets in Minecraft, but Zach left. So I'm just firing off rockets for myself. Oh, also, for us, it's been longer than a year. That's true. We, we, we're, we've been practicing recording and, and editing uh, just to get a feel for it, probably a, a, since, you know, maybe more like 15 to 18 months. But in terms of publication, we're, we're one year old, so we'll go with that. Woo. And, uh, of course, we also timed the anniversary of the podcast in April to line up with the anniversary of the fire at Notre Dame so that... As we ever, every time we hit our birthday, we we can raise a little more awareness. We can celebrate the fire, says David the arsonist. Is this ever going to get you in trouble one day? <laughs> Only if it turns out he's actually the arsonist. So I want to follow up on our conversation last time where we touched on a bit on culture, but I wanted to take it a little step further. Uh, I want to dive into a specific element of culture, and that is art. And this idea was spurred out of a conversation we had after the last time we recorded between Zach and me. And so I wanted to pause it then uh, because I wanted to uh, get some of Zach's thoughts out recorded for posterity. Okay. Uh, I, I think you have very interesting thoughts on truth. So I am very curious about the connections between art and truth. Oh, time for me to get that margarita. That's right. Yeah. And the, the value. back in a bit. That's right. Uh, the, this is the Zach and David show now. The responsibility of art to speak to truth or not. Um, I think the easiest way to get into this is to share the example that always comes to mind for me. The movie Steve Jobs, written by Aaron Sorkin, is a biopic, ostensibly, about Steve Jobs' life. Though it's told in a unique way where the movie is divided into thirds and each third is tell is telling the story behind the scenes of a of a specific presentation that Steve Jobs was about to make. I really love this movie. I think it's incredibly well acted. I think the writing is incredibly snappy and fun to listen to. I think the stakes are well done. It is incredibly inaccurate. Uh, to the extent that times I've wondered if it's so inaccurate that it might have been better if it was never made in the first place, despite loving it. I'm not sure that it should exist because I do wonder about art, particularly art that is trying to represent real life, a real person's life in this case, has a responsibility because that's what people are going to more likely to remember. They're more likely to remember that than they are the biography of Steve Jobs. And now they're more likely to have false impressions. So that's my long-winded way of getting into, I'm curious about your thoughts on the responsibility art should have. So there's a quote in my mind that I couldn't find any attribution to. Lincoln. It's Lincoln. 
but there's uh, there are two similar quotes, uh, one from Pablo Picasso and then the other one from uh, Alan Moore. Uh, which is two very different visual artists. Yeah, you can see how they're in the same vein. So the the quote that I know is that um, artists use lies to tell the truth. Politicians just the opposite. <laughs> I couldn't find any attribution to that. Uh, so the, the Picasso one uh, doesn't have any mention about politicians. It's, we all know that art is not truth. Art is a lie that makes us realize the truth. And then the Alan Moore quote is that, uh, is from V for Vendetta is my father was a writer. You would have liked him. He used to say that artists use lies to tell the truth while politicians use them to cover the truth up. And that's not so much a dig at politicians. Is it to talk about the responsibility of art in regards to, to the truth. And I would say that no individual and also not a collection of individuals if anyone was thinking i was going to go there has any access to capital t truth sure not a mathematician who defines what truth is in order for them to use truth later in theorems so an axiom is a, a statement that a mathematician writes down um and that is by definition truth in the system in which they're working in and you look at Euclid's five postulates, he writes the fifth postulate down, he states it as an axiom. Uh, we go for hundreds of years, mathematicians realize that they can make spaces uh, that where that fifth postulate is not truth. Um, so spherical and hyperbolic geometry come out of the idea of recognizing that a statement written down as absolute T-truth wasn't absolute T-truth. So mathematicians don't have access to it as much as they want to. Mm -hmm. Philosophers don't have access to it as much as they want to. Get the pitchforks out for me, but religious leaders don't have access to it as much as they want you to believe that they do. Historians probably most relevant for the, what I was saying. Like Yeah, historians especially, because I think the, the better way to think about history is to separate it from the past. And so the past is... The stuff that happened and history is the story we tell about the stuff that happened. Right. And so you brought up the Steve Jobs movie. It's not a documentary, but even if it were a documentary, which might theoretically have more ethical responsibility to be as close as possible as it uh, can be to the past. Even documentaries have what's called the documentarian's lens, yep. which is where the filmmaker chooses to focus on because you're you're limited to a two-hour event and you're probably covering something that's more than two hours. You have to focus on something. And that focus inherently, even if it's well-intentioned, has the bias of the filmmaker involved. And so instead of trying to accurately capture the past or capture an event or capture the truth in all of its veracity. That's a fool's errand in my mind. And the better target for an artist, and I, I think this is something that uh, I've been touching on throughout the podcast, is to figure out what, what emotion, what feeling do you want to invoke in your audience member about a thing? Use the medium that's appropriate for that 
and then express yourself that way. And that is much more meaningful to me as a human. And I feel like I want it to be mean, more meaningful to other humans where we use this word earlier in this podcast, the connections between other people, the feelings you have with other people, the the habits you have with other people. Like that's like the story we tell amongst ourselves is much more important for us as humans than trying to capture the past just as it happened because that is impossible that was that was really well put i I really appreciated that as i like to do when you make your grand philosophical proclamations yeah proclamations is going to putting it uh (laughs) i like to try to to poke around it at the edges um sure Again, it's I find the Steve Jobs movie very uh, a useful framing device, but I'm going to try to make it broader than just that movie. You know, that's a movie that's depicting someone's actual life and, uh, or at least pieces of it, and, and other people around it. There are decisions that were made in the screenwriting that are close to defamation. I would say that are I don't know about the legal definition of defamation, for it, but but are intentionally misleading uh, in a negative way about living people, people who are still alive after Steve Jobs died. Recognizing that that nothing, as you say, has complete truth, and so it's just about getting to some semblance of the truth, is there still a responsibility to not lie in specific ways? Um, yeah, I think there's a... This is like a... This is Will Wheaton. Uh, don't be a dick. <laughs> right i think like the the golden rule of a lot of religions out there come down to to treat other people well sure right sure love thy neighbor treat them how you treat yourself every every religion has some some aspect of the golden rule Im- embedded somewhere in there and so from an ethical perspective i think you're absolutely right there is some amount of responsibility not to tear other people down. There is a a balancing act that people have to play with that rule because if someone is using their persona to tear down other people, then you can absolutely find some ethical space to justify disarming them by attacking their persona. I don't think this is true about Steve Jobs, but Steve Jobs was very effective at selling his idea for how personal computing should operate. And the fact that the PC Mac terminology is confusing here is not helping me, but a Mac is a personal computer. I'm sorry, Mac users. Mac is a personal computer. (laughs) Live with it. (laughs) I don't know if all of us will get over it, but some of us will. (laughs) Good. And so he he certainly has a vision for how personal computers should operate. And in effort to enact his vision about how personal computers should operate, if he were more destructive uh, in the way that he went about enacting that vision in a way that was deleterious primarily to other people, but either secondarily or tertiary to the computing industry as a whole, right? In order to stop him from doing that destruction, it, it's not unreasonable to take down the the persona of the, the person in the center of it. 
through the art you're saying that you if you're trying to use art to stop their destructive behavior i mean if you're a lawyer you can use the law well sure sure sure, sure. if you're an artist you can use the art right and so certainly if you think that the closed ecosystem nature of apple computing is deleterious to computing in general then you want to write some negative think pieces about how apple took really sort of lackluster hardware and lackluster software but a really huge marketing arm and a really huge cult of personality to their benefit in order to make people believe that their laptops are worth $300 more than an equivalently powerful non-Mac laptop, right? You, you could write those pieces. I'm not going to, but they exist certainly out there. So it, just to sum up your, your larger, so essentially like it, it's a follow the golden rule but the golden rule is also not necessarily just be good to one person but it can also extend to like use art to be good to society at large which might which might involve targeting negatively a specific person if it's serving a larger goal it's a combination of uh turn the other cheek and live by the sword die by the sword (laughs) you have to be able to walk those lines it's difficult we we do it collectively very 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 poorly uh huh i've never heard those both uttered in the same sentence before (laughs) all right david yeah i i have a few clarifying questions for you because i want i want to see if i can pinpoint where your concern is okay sure so I'm trying to figure out in particular, is your issue with, say, the Steve Jobs movie, again, as an example, is it an issue that is based on time? In other words, is the issue largely based on the fact that there are living people who might be experiencing defamation, like you were saying? Mm. Because is it not the same issue with, say, Homer, Homer's tale of the Iliad? I don't think Eris, the goddess of discord, probably actually chucked an apple that made all the gods then choose Paris to then steal Helen of Troy that then kicked off the Trojan War. So that's not clearly, you know, an accurate historical depiction of that war. But I don't hear many people complaining about the fact that it's not. Now, that's a pretty extreme example. Yeah, I, I think I think recency and, and, and living people when it's about some people are still living. I do think... Um, raises the bar yeah i think the second consideration is when it's art that is trying to pretend that it's truth but is that steve jobs movie trying to pretend that it's truth i think in a lot of ways it is and 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 maybe this is just too hyper specific of an example but it the medium of movies and tv are i think is more pernicious at this than other paintings or sculptures when you have performances human performances uh i think this that's where it gets a little trickier if they are telling a narrative story over a historical event or a historical person more people are likely to witness that than a documentary about the same person because we it's entertainment entertainment is generally watched by more people and so more people are going to walk away with believing that is how this happened because they saw the entertainment version rather than the documentarian version. And I, I acknowledge that neither is full truth. I get that. Uh, and I, I, I'm in agreement with you there. Um, I think it's also fair to say that the documentary is closer to truth than art is to truth. Maybe uh, maybe the art's getting to a higher truth, but just like in the, in the factual level, if we're just talking about truth as facts, uh, the documentary should be closer than the artistic piece 
but more people will see that and associate it with truth, particularly if it's putting itself forward that way. Well, so the obviously the Trojan War was an extreme example sure. of like this is a completely different artistic creation that fulfills such a different purpose than the sort of quasi documentary feel of the Aaron Sorkin Steve Jobs movie, right? Mm-hmm. But maybe a closer comparison which might warrant something a little more interesting. What about Shakespeare? And his histories. Yeah, no, that is a better example. What about King Richard III, right? Who is depicted, you know, as a craven, evil king who wants to trade his kingdom for a horse at the very end of the play just so he can spare his own life and then dies on the battlefield, right? Of course, he still lived maybe, I think, what, a couple hundred years before Shakespeare wrote the play. But again, he's passing off his plays as histories, at least as far as I know, uh, at least that's how it was marketed to me. Whereas I feel like that is very much in the same vein as, you know, the Steve Jobs quasi-biography. So do you have issue with what Shakespeare did as well? Um, That's a great point. Um, You are, I think that does go back to what you said earlier with the recency does have a a significant weight Mm -hmm. and the histories that Shakespeare were writing weren't recent in his time either. He was writing about Mm -hmm. for, I don't, yeah, I don't think he did any history. A couple hundred years. At a minimum, yeah. Um, Yeah. uh, Like the, the one that sticks in my head the most of his would be Julius Caesar. I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure Shakespeare invented the line et tu, Brute. I think he did. I don't think we have a historical record of that. But like that is now yeah. people assume that Julius Caesar said that. Right. From uh, something that came out of an artist's out of a playwright's mouth. There are other lines that Julius Caesar, I believe, are documented like Winnie Woody Wiki. Or as most common people say, Veni Vidi Vici, although that's not how it's pronounced. But, you know, there are other things. But I think you're right. The Atu Brute, I think he created himself. But we, I mean, we have some responsibility to other people in, our, in the things that we create. But we are not in control of how other people receive the, the art altogether, right? And so if you want that's to true. tell a story about someone who uses cult of personality and who uses people in a manipulative way, you shouldn't be restricted to fictional characters only uh, in being able to tell that. Yeah, and I think Aaron Sorkin specifically tends to write about real people because it has that extra weightiness to it. Yeah. Uh, Whereas if you do a fictional... Another good example in my mind is the movie uh, Greatest Showman, Mm. which is ostensibly about P.T. Barnum, but turns him into a hero... And P.T. Barnum is no hero. Sure. And so it's kind of, it's an opposite extreme. Like that movie is trying to tell a story of. Along the lines again of the Shakespeare histories. Yeah. It's like the message of the movie is inclusivity. Yay. To put it in two words, which is (laughs) not what P.T. Barnum was about. He was about spectacle at the expense of humans. But I I think the writers uh, of that movie thought they would be more successful at picking a historical figure that people know rather than just like a fictional person at the time, even if it was inspired by or whatever, just that connection to reality draws people in. But since people believe all sorts of nonsense stuff, you can't control how everyone receives your art. And yeah, but you can make it worse. Artists can make the nonsense worse. Artists certainly can make the nonsense worse. But if you're trying to tell a a particular story, you certainly have a responsibility to other living humans not to royally screw them over. But 
you certainly shouldn't be restricted as an artist to only tell stories that can't be misconstrued. Yeah, yeah. No, I wouldn't go that far. That'd be, yeah, that'd be the extreme end of, of what I'm getting at. And, I, and I, I wouldn't go that far. I still think that the artist probably has some, well, I, I don't think anyone's disagreed here that the art, artist has some responsibility. I think we're all just drawing the lines at, at slightly different places. Well, I guess that you can't avoid the question at this point, you know, clearly, even if you're trying to be as truthful as possible, some fictions are still going to inevitably come out and works like this. Yes. But then the question becomes what truths are important and what truths don't matter. Yeah. Like, for example, we've touted many times Notre Dame started construction in 1163. And I assume that number is correct, but that's only I've never actually read any primary sources on that data point. Does it really matter whether it's correct plus or minus five years? Maybe to a super specialist historian who is trying to do some kind of comparison between some historical records it would be, but it's only an edge case. You know, like, there's just an example. If you flip a few numbers, flip a few dates, you know, when does it matter and when doesn't it matter is, I think, the open question. And and the way you frame that, too, of it matters more for the research historian than it does for you, I think, is is a good point, too. Yeah, the audience that it's intended for mm-hmm. um, matters a lot, and I think that's almost a counterpoint to what to what something I said earlier, where like more people are going to see the entertainment piece than the documentary, even if they're about the same person. But roughly, you have to assume that the audiences of each recognize the differences between the two as well, and you do have to have some put some responsibility on the audience as well. It seems like the truths that are most in question are the truths that surround. Does individual A, B, or C deserve to be honored? At the end of any major tale, most humans make a judgment or an appraisal. Was this person a good person or was this person a bad person? Thumbs up, yes, thumbs up, thumbs down. So I guess that's sort of maybe at the apex of the truths that we tend to value the most. I don't know, again, if you would agree with that or not. No. Okay. Please share. I again, I'm not wed to anything here. I'm just... No, I, I, you're you're trying to speak for all people, and I am not going to engage in that. <laughs> Fair activity. enough. Fair enough. I, I can speak for myself. I am not interested in whether or not someone was a good person or someone was a bad person. I'm not in Zen Buddhist culture, but I think from my novice interpretation of yin and yang, right? There's there's darkness in the light, and there's light in the darkness. So there's good in all people, there's bad in all people, right? Calling someone a good person or a bad person is pretty reductive. I, I think you, I, maybe I, this is probably my fault, but I, the point I was trying to convey wasn't simply, you know, a black and white depiction of everything, but most people, again, I, I think, at least my guess is most people at the end of a tale like to make some kind of value judgment on the humans they saw. What, you know, however complex that can be, like, I think generally people try to decide how they think, how the humans they witnessed went through the actions they took. And not necessarily just white and black, but like yeah. the, the, the one to 10 scale, you know, like mm-hmm. gradations in between. Right. I largely agree with that. I think you can easily speak for yourselves. That's fine. Fair enough. Zach doesn't judge. I do. It's just that I don't judge. (laughs) I just don't have a a Kinsey scale for like. Why won't you judge me, Zach? Oh, he is. Judge me. (laughs) No. Is Is that the name of this episode? (laughs) Judge me. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So people don't have access to our camera, but there was a thumbs up, thumbs down about whether or not we should honor someone. That was a pretty stark contrast gesture for whether someone falls in the good bucket yes. or someone falls in the bad bucket. Yes, it was. And then you you acquiesced. I mean, you, as with all modeling, you have to simplify things when you're trying to convey ideas. For a, a frictionless villain in a vacuum, do they fall into the good bucket or the bad bucket? And you acquiesced to me. Is the villain spherical? The villain is spherical. The villain isn't cylindrical. And, and you acquiesced to me and you and you said, all right, maybe, maybe good bucket, bad bucket, it isn't exactly how we actually do it, but there are some things that are good. There are some things that are bad, but we still like to judge where they fall on the good, bad spectrum. And that's still, it's, it's like, it, it's grating to me, like to think about it in those terms. I'm not saying you can't think about it in that terms, but like, I like seeing good people in your categorization do bad things in your categorization and bad people in your categorization do good things. And that doesn't put them like somewhere in the, the middle of a scale. They're, they're both good and bad. And in, in such a way where that, that terminology starts to lose the original meaning of calling someone good or calling someone bad. It's just calling someone like a flawed meatbag. I think this is the term that I used in a, in a previous episode. I'm going to split the baby because I agree with Zach in that that is my preferred way of watching things, figuring out where the good is in the bad and the bad is in the good. But I also do think that I agree with Tom that I think the common way to watch something is to categorize on a on some sort of spectrum of good to bad. And in some ways, that's potato, potato. It's not, though. But like, if you're putting it somewhere on a scale, like that's like this person is 60% good, 40% bad. I'm advocating against that. You're, you're saying, but you're, you are saying you're looking for the bad within the good and the good within the bad. That's your categorization. I, I was trying to use terms that were familiar to you guys for how I looked at it. And it's, it's obvious there's like a mismatch there. Okay. What I'm interested in is an interesting character. Sure. And that is divorced from the ideas of good and bad, I think. And an interesting character sometimes hurts people. Sure. Because humans sometimes hurt other humans. So when you watch a movie, Zach, yeah. do you root for characters and boo other characters? Like mentally, not verbally, although maybe you do verbally. <laughs> or do you, do you watch movies so divorced from like, Oh, you know, like I'm, you know, I'm watching those orcs slaughter all those elves and how interesting this is. What's motivating those orcs to kill all those elves, you know? Or do you still like end up rooting for some characters over others? Like, I really hope those elves live. I don't want to see them get killed off by those orcs. So like the Urukai, I don't root for. The orcs, I don't root for. Mm -hmm. Saruman also, I don't root for. Mm -hmm. But I find Saruman to be an interesting character and I watch... Lord of the Rings. I haven't read Lord of the Rings since middle school, but when I watch the movies, like I, when I'm, I'm watching it, I'm invested in Saruman to the elves point. Uh, I find, uh, Elrond to be an interesting character. I don't find all elves to be interesting characters. Well, do you, but do you want Saruman to be defeated in the story? Are you hoping that in the end he loses? Um, 
Yeah, because I have my own sense of morality and he's causing suffering on other people, right? And I don't I don't want that and I want him to stop doing that. So I want him to be defeated. But So like, if if by your own compass of morality, you're then making a judgment call that this person needs to fail, this person is doing bad things. But the distinction that I have is the things that's interesting to me in art. Like Saruman's an interesting person to me and he's more interesting of a character to me than some of the quote-unquote good guys. Yeah, most people say the same thing about Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. Darth Vader is an uninteresting character. <laughs> yeah, but he's probably more interesting than Luke Skywalker. But He's cooler. But. The point is, is that you're still making a value judgment over the characters. And in the end, that is probably influencing on how you're hoping the narrative is going to unfold. Well, yeah, I mean, Tolkien is very clear the, the lines are a lot starker in Tolkien than they are in other things. And so oh, I'll agree with that. I, yeah. I, re I really do love Lord of the Rings, but I think choosing Lord of the Rings really is one extreme of storytelling. You could say, like, when you read, uh, like, Paradise Lost or something, are you rooting for Mephistopheles? Like, <laughs> he's an interesting character. Satan is an interesting character. Like, you're not rooting for him to succeed, but, like, I am more enriched as an audience member being exposed to interesting characters more so than I am enriched as an audience member being exposed to simple dualities. And I am going to gravitate towards that to such an extent that like the duality part of the conversation is like repugnant. Yeah, and again, I, I tried to, again, maybe I keep failing, but I tried earlier to emphasize that I was simplifying the value judgment piece just to expedite the conversation, but clearly that backfired. Well, I think it's that you two are, are talking past each other. Really? What gave that away? <laughs> but it's like you're not talking in the same spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, Zach is acknowledging that there are, on his scale of morality, there are characters that fall on the quote-quote good side and characters that fall on the quote-quote bad your, side. On your, yeah, your yeah, 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 yeah. On, on your, but no, on, you said you have your own morality. So I'm talking, yeah, you, you have your own you, spectrum. You said but you, it's not a scale, no, though. No, no, okay, okay, okay. Put that aside. Tom is talking in that metric. Right. You are talking that on a scale of interestingness. Not even a scale. You, well, yeah, no, a scale of interesting to non-interesting. Um, uh, yeah, but that's... It, which is divorced. You were saying is divorced from good and bad. I, I'm, yes. I'm trying to agree with you, Zach. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so Tom is trying to superimpose his good and bad scale onto your interesting and not interesting scale. And they're not one-to-one. -one. I don't think he is. Okay, yeah. fine. I won't defend you. <laughs> No, you, I, I, I think you're largely right. It's just like, this is what I, this is what I was trying to say at the very beginning, which is like, you can certainly talk for yourself. If you like a, a stark contrast and you like having morality plays like in the next generation where the best episodes are morality plays, Picard is always the, the bastion of light and nobility Right in in the morality play, and he's he's juxtaposed against something else. If if you like that, I'm not trying to take that away from you. My initial rejection was trying to apply that to more than just yourself. So when Tom said, uh, "I think most people X Y Z," the thing that popped into my head at the beginning is, "Well, most people have seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang." <laughs> 
<laughs> oh no. <laughs> That's it for now. Check out our podcast website at cathedraltalk.fm. There you will find many architectural visuals and Minecraft goodies. If you would like to support our efforts here at Cathedral Talk to aid in the restoration of Notre Dame, please use the direct link on our website to donate to friendsofnotredamedeparis.org. Friends of Notre Dame is a nonprofit organization that is leading the international fundraising efforts to rebuild and restore Notre Dame Cathedral. By donating to them through the link at cathedraltalk.fm, we'll know that our podcast is reaching new patrons. As our own Minecraft project progresses, we'll be sure to share plans, screenshots, and videos for your own visual palette. Good day and happy building.